Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a podcast about the global economy. I'm Tori Stowell, a U.S. economics reporter in D.C. with Bloomberg News. It is October 8th on Thursday, and I am with my colleague and co-host Aki Ito, our editor for Benchmark in San Francisco. Hey, Tori. How's it going? Good, good. How are things your way? Uh, it's good. It's good. Great time to be in San Francisco. Well, Dan is actually on a train to New York, so he's not going to be joining us today. But we do have a very special guest, Katerina Sariva, a data editor with Bloomberg, is right next to me in our studio in D.C. Hello. Hi. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> So, Katerina, you just got back from your honeymoon in Italy, where I hope you've been too busy relaxing to pay attention to all the stressful things happening in the global economy right now. Tori, what do you think is the one thing that she should know from the past week? Definitely the jobs report, which was, in a nutshell, abysmal. Payrolls rose just 142,000 in September. And that was after gains in August and July were revised down. So we lost 59,000 jobs, or I should say we had 59,000 jobs fewer than we originally thought we had. Also, average hourly earnings fell by a penny from the prior month and year over year. You know, wage growth was just 2.2%, which if you listen to our episode on wages, you know that's really nothing to write home about. Um, We saw weakness in factory payrolls. We saw labor force participation slow. So in short, this report makes it almost impossible for the Federal Reserve to justify an October rate hike. And the remaining question is, you know, will they take 2015 off the table entirely? Uh, We'll have to wait and see how the data turn out. It's interesting because we talked about wages back a couple weeks ago. And we talked about how it's a mystery because the job market is doing really well, but economic growth, wage growth is really, really slow. I, I guess this kind of makes sense now that the job market, it looks like the job market isn't doing as well as we thought it was, even though this is really depressing news. Right. It seems like some of the weakness that we've been seeing is starting to bleed over into the labor market as well. Yeah, definitely. You know, related to that, the thing I wanted to talk about was that our very own Bloomberg Markets magazine came out with their annual list of the most influential people in global finance. And Fed Chair Janet Yellen, who (laughs) I guess we talk about every single week on this podcast, (laughs) was crowned the top of this list. And our colleagues Chris Condon and Rich Miller wrote this great profile of her of you know, her decision-making style, which is really collaborative. Apparently, she doesn't really give her own opinions until everyone else speaks. Pretty cool stuff. And they also talk about what hangs in the balance as the Fed considers raising rates for the first time since basically Tori was born. (laughs) So uh, it's a great profile. Um, uh, You can check it out on Bloomberg.com. So you missed a lot, Katerina. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) Do you you feel caught up now on the global economy? Yes, I now feel completely caught up. Thanks, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Katerina, welcome back. We're really excited to have you on the show today because you just had the most beautiful wedding in Lisbon that I had the great pleasure of attending. Because we're both pretty intense nerds, we talked a lot about the economics of the wedding um, in the two years leading up to it. I was thinking that it's kind of a perfect symbiotic relationship between you and Europe. Europe created all these conditions for you to have this amazing wedding, and you did great things for Europe by having your wedding there. And Tori and I also realized that we've only talked about depressing things since we launched this show. 
Yeah, no more being downers for now. <laughs> yeah, so we'll only be talking about happy things this week. So let's set the stage here. Katerina, you got married in Lisbon back in mid-September, back a couple weeks ago, in what was once the Austro-Hungarian embassy back in the day. So fancy. Uh, yeah, I know. It was a gorgeous rooftop ceremony, a beautiful sunny day. Let's first talk about the ways that global financial markets kind of conspired to give you the perfect wedding. The euro right now is uh, currently ridiculously cheap against the U.S. dollar, and that meant that in dollar terms, your wedding turned out to be a lot cheaper than you had expected, right? Right, yeah. So as you mentioned, um, we got engaged two years ago and started planning all of this, and we basically budgeted with a euro rate of about 130 because when we got engaged it was in the 130s and of course now it's around 110 111 it's quite a difference i mean it's it's basically a 20 cent difference for every dollar tori do you want to give us a really quick primer on why the euro weakened so spectacularly over the course of the last few years um Katerina, you got engaged uh, two years ago, but the euro has been weakening for about seven years now. Definitely. So for this episode, when we're talking about you know the euro versus the dollar, and we say it's strengthened or weakened, um, we're looking at the euro and the dollar, so no other currencies for this purpose. Just big picture, the main reason that the euro is so much weaker now is just simply that the European economy has performed worse than the U.S. economy. I'm going to unpack that in a second, but that's the broad takeaway. So, you know, in April 2008, at the peak of the euro's strength, it cost $1.6 to get one euro. And then along came this tiny little hiccup called the global financial crisis, and things have pretty much gone downhill for the euro ever since. And a lot of that can be traced to the Greek debt crisis and other problems in heavily indebted European nations. You know, Greece, Ireland, Portugal, Cyprus, they all got bailouts and Spanish banks got rescued. There were fears that, you know, the Eurozone would break up. Um, But then things settled down when the European Central Bank president came out and said, you know, we're going to do whatever it takes to preserve the common currency. And that was in 2012. So after that, things started improving in Greece. Um, You know, by 2014, they were spending less than they were collecting and their economy was starting to recover. But, you know, people were fed up with austerity. The unemployment rate there has been around 25% for years now. It's still around there. And so the public voted for a new government that wanted to reverse that austerity. They decided to fight austerity and they did not win that fight. Greeks' banks closed, its stock market closed, they fell back into the recession. Um, eventually, Greece ended up accepting a new bailout on terms that were harsher than the other ones. So this whole time, Europe's economy has been pretty mediocre, even though the ECB has been ultra accommodative and done its own version of quantitative easing to, you know, goose growth. Um, But economists still see the eurozone expanding at a 1.5% pace this year. And by contrast, the U.S. is seen growing at a 2.5% pace this year. You know, it's interesting because right now the narrative in the U.S. is when is the Fed going to raise interest rates? In Europe, it's all about potential speculation that the ECB might come out with even more stimulus, even more quantitative easing than before. 
So it's pretty clear that the two banks are going separate ways, and that obviously weighs on the euro even more. Exactly. So, you know, as disappointing as the U.S. recovery has been, it's been much, much stronger than Europe's, and that's been reflected in foreign exchange markets through a stronger dollar. The lowest the euro ever got against the dollar post-financial crisis was when it cost $1.05 for every euro in March of this year. And so keep in mind, we're recording this on October 7th. So now it's at about 1.12. If the Fed, like you mentioned, decides that the U.S. economy is healthy enough and strong enough to withstand higher interest rates, that exchange rate could actually approach parity. So a one-for-one ratio if the dollar strengthens even more. But if the Fed holds off, um, it may signal to investors that the U.S just isn't so strong after all, and the dollar could weaken. So lots going on, lots for Katerina to have swirling around her head as she's planning her wedding. Oh, yeah. When did you exactly decide to convert your dollars into euros? How did, with all that going on, how did you approach that? Just because I'm sure you had to make decisions at some point, and Mm -hmm. you don't want to lose, but it's very uncertain with what's going to happen. So how did you approach that? Yeah, so um, basically we spent the first year that we were engaged trying to figure out where to get married. And then the second year we were really planning it in Portugal. So we decided um, that we would kind of start saving our money and uh, we figured out last year that it would be better to just do a few different small transfers at a time rather than one, you know, waiting and doing one lump sum because we knew that the exchange rate can be quite fickle and things can move around. So we thought that, okay, while we aren't exactly FX experts, this was kind of a way for us to maybe take advantage of some price improvements if it did improve. And that is actually what happened. But when we did our first transfer in September of last year, the euro market rate was just under 130. So it was still pretty high. Yeah. And you used to be on our FX news team here, right? So you had a little bit of background in this. Yeah. And did that like play a role at all? You're like, all right, just so we got to arbitrage this. like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that definitely, I mean, I covered FX for two years and it was the main, um, the biggest currencies, which are the euro, the dollar and the yen. And those two years we saw um, extreme, extreme yen strength. And of course now we're seeing the exact opposite of that, extreme yen weakness. So I think that was a great lesson and you just never know what's going to happen. I mean, things can change on a dime. And yeah. I think that's really what we've seen with the euro because when it broke under 120, I was shocked when that happened. I mean, the whole time I was reporting on the euro during the heat of the Greek debt crisis, it didn't go under 118. So it was just, it was quite a shock. Wow. <laughs> so Katarina, how much would you say that you ended up saving as a result of the weaker euro? So I ran all the numbers and um, so we did six transfers total. We did one in September, November, February, April, July, and then we did one right after the wedding. So the ultra hedge. Yeah, the ultra (laughs) hedge. So basically we were able to save um, about 2,700 euros and that's looking at how much we were able to get um, doing the six different transfers when we did them compared to if we had transferred all of the money when we got engaged back in September of 2013. That's a big chunk of change. Yeah, it's a it's a lot of money. Um, just to give you an idea, yeah, when we got engaged, the euro was at 131.20. And 
the biggest transfer we did was in February of this year. And we were able, um, on that day, we got a market rate of 114. Wow. Um, the best rate we got was in April when we transferred at a rate of 107. Gosh, that's, yeah. awesome. that's incredible. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good amount. On top of all these currency savings, you and Justin Oza benefited from relatively cheap living costs right now in Portugal, right? This is yeah. a pretty cool number. The Economist tracks the price of Big Macs from McDonald's in all these different countries around the world, and they use it as a proxy for how expensive life is in all those different places. So the average Big Mac in the U.S. in July was $4.79. This was $3.29 in Portugal, so a good $1.50 difference. Um, In Portugal, it actually turned out to be one of the cheapest prices in Europe. So it's probably really smart that you didn't get married in the Alps since a Big Mac was at a whopping $6.82 in Switzerland. Wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you and Justin got engaged, and, and you said for the first year you tried to uh, you tried to decide where to get married, was this cost an issue, this uh, cheap, relatively cheap living cost in Portugal? Did you think about that? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we were looking at the U.S., um, obviously where we live right now, and where Justin is from and Portugal, where all of my family is. And the two factors were kind of, okay, where, you know, are people willing to travel to Portugal? Are, are, is my family willing to travel to the U.S.? So, I mean, first of all, it was the people and what would be best for everyone. And then the second factor, yeah, definitely um, was money because it, I think we, we ended up spending less money than we would have in the U.S. Or another way to look at it is in the U.S. we would not have had as nice of a wedding as we were able to have in Portugal. So less bang for your buck. Right, exactly. We're all talking about how Katarina benefited from a cheaper euro, but you guys also sort of helped out Portugal, you know? If you think about it like this, so currency weekends and all of a sudden people can finally take that Euro trip that they've been wanting to take because it seems like an opportune time to do it. So currency weekends and foreigners come in and drop a ton of money and that helps the economy, that helps the people living there. So Katerina, how many guests traveled to Portugal for your wedding? We had about 65 people come out from the U.S. Well, from the U.S. and um, a few other places. Um, One of my good friends and her husband came from Australia. We had some friends um, from other places in Europe. So these are 65 people who probably wouldn't have gone to Portugal otherwise and spent money on lodging, on food, on the, you know, Verde. So you you really did your part to save uh, Europe, too. (laughs) (laughs) Single-handedly. Anything I can do to help, guys. (laughs) Katerina, how is Portugal's economy doing right now? It's it has returned to growth. Um, It did suffer a pretty bad recession when the rest of Europe um, was in crisis as well. There's kind of this saying that Portugal had the bust without the boom because you really didn't have um, years of huge economic growth before this crisis in Portugal. But it had a bailout um, in 2011, and it exited the bailout last year. 
they raise taxes, they cut a good amount of spending. So um, Portugal's doing okay. I mean, it's it's slowly getting back on its feet. They just had elections, um, and they re-elected the prime minister who had implemented a lot of these austerity measures. So I think that's being seen as kind of a good sign for Europe that voters are um, choosing to re-elect some of these leaders that are implementing pretty tough policies. I mean, taxes have really gone up across the board. Um, They're they're working through some pension reforms right now. So it's just there's a a lot of kind of tumult and and chaos a little bit going on so it's a lot for people to deal with but yeah it's it's they're set to grow Uh, economists are forecasting 1.6 percent growth this year so you know it's slowly but surely i mean i'm planning a trip to paris next year running the paris marathon and so i've also got my eyes on exchange rates so fingers crossed yeah Yeah, book those hotels now (laughs) (laughs) lock those rates in And Katerina, your honeymoon was in Italy, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we figured it, it was I, close enough. <laughs> yeah, and Italy is also obviously a struggling economy right now, probably potentially doing um, struggling even more than Portugal is at the moment. So even for your honeymoon, you were able to lock in those, uh, you know, the benefits of a cheap bureau too. Yeah, yeah. We actually, um, we paid most of the hotels where we stayed, we prepaid for them. And we did a lot of that in February when the euro was really low. So we kind of lucked out with that because, you know, those, those are pretty expensive things, you know, when you're staying in a hotel for multiple nights. So, um, that was definitely nice. <laughs> well, Katerina, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all of you for listening to Bloomberg Benchmark. We will be back next week and you can find us on Bloomberg.com as well as on iTunes and Pocket Cast. And while you're there, please take a moment to rate, review, subscribe to the show. Um, all those things help other listeners discover us. And feel free to tweet at Katerina, at, at Katerina Sariva, if you'd like some free wedding advice. And tell us what you thought of the show, too. You can reach us and follow us on Twitter at, at Tori Stillwell and at Aki Ito7. See you next week. And bonus points if you can spell Sariva. <laughs>